This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA Sahara James, Justin McAmond, and Tessa Rainbolt speak with Mitchell Silver, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. My name is Tessa Rainbolt. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, if I wasn't in the Bard MBA, I would probably be pursuing an urban planning degree. So I know I don't speak just for myself, uh, but the whole crew on today that we're very excited and looking forward to this conversation and see cities as such a powerful tool for the change that we're all fighting for and hoping for. But enough about that. I just want to dive in for the sake of time. The New York City Department of Parks and Recreation is the steward of more than 30,000 acres of land and are New York City's principal providers of recreational and athletic facilities and programs. Can you tell us some more about the agency and in general, the role that parks play in the lives of the 8 million plus New Yorkers? Well, first, uh, let me say you cannot have a successful city without an incredible park system. Uh, it's the public realm, it's the parks, uh, it, what's make, it what makes cities livable. Uh, and New York City of that 30,000 acres you mentioned, that represents 14% of New York City. And for many New Yorkers, parks are their front yard, it's their backyard, it's where people go to connect. And you just cannot have a quality city without public space. And I'm sure we'll get to it shortly, but even in COVID, when everything in the city was closed in terms of gathering spaces and where people worked, parks remained open. And so it, it goes to show uh, that it's not just this nice amenity, it became vital for us to survive during COVID. It's not just for physical health, it's also for mental health. And that's what people gravitated to uh, during the pandemic. So in New York, it's what makes New York City uh, the magical place that it is. Uh, close to 2,000 parks. Uh, there's a park with at least a 10-minute walk for every resident. We're about 80% of all New Yorkers are within a 10-minute walk to a park. And that's so critical. But it's not just about the open space. We also use our parks uh, to really address climate change. Uh, in, term, in terms of our tree canopy, uh, it improves air quality, water quality, the heat island effect. We now capturing stormwater is also our first line of defense. We're a coastal city. Uh, so parks play multiple roles uh, for New Yorkers. And so that is what it offers to New York City. So it's and our public programs. Uh, we have an amazing set of public programs uh, that really enliven our public spaces. And we have concessions from ice skating to kayak. So it's just one big paradise to play in. And the parks uh, plays that role. Last point, I'd like to say we're not just a Department of Parks and Recreation, but also Department of Fun, Health and Happiness. But we're the Department of Fun in New York City. And if people want to have a good time, uh, it is the park. So I always ask someone in your city, who's the Department of Fun? They scratch their heads. In New York City, it's a no-brainer. It's New York City Parks. Thank you for that. That definitely hits on the variety of services that parks can offer. And I think it's very clear how your passion comes through about the park system. We had the great pleasure of watching a couple of your speeches, including your keynote speech from the 2012 APA convention and your CNU talk, Planning for People. So you talk about the importance of connecting with 
purpose as a planner and remembering that a planner's most important and weighty responsibility is to act as safeguards for future generations. Can you speak to how that passion and your outlook on the profession along with your professional background has prepared you for the position in parks? Uh, certainly. Well, since you saw both those uh, videos, I do believe planners are guardians of the future, both for present and future generations. That's what we spend our time thinking about. We'll look at the current issues and then we look for the future and make sure we've got the public's back. We want to make sure we have an environment where people can thrive. In terms of how prepared for it, uh, in terms of New York City, uh, born and bred in New York, or uh, grew up in Brooklyn, not far from Prosper Park. That was my first interaction uh, with green space, uh, seeing a lake for the first time, a babbling brook, uh, a waterfall, uh, seeing this amazing green space. Uh, that had an impression on me because since we live so close to Prosper Park, my family spent a lot of our time almost every weekend in Prosper Park. And then I went to the 1964 World's Fair at the age of four, and there was this huge model of New York City. I later learned it was called a panorama, uh, but there was something about seeing that entire city in the model that stuck something in me. And so if you're a parent, you never know by taking your child to an event what impact it'll have. And for me, uh, I just could not get that model out of my head. I was fascinated by cities. And then as I grew, uh, I decided to pursue a degree in architecture and then a master's degree in urban planning. But it was that early impression, both of being in that incredible uh, park, Prosper Park, and then seeing that panorama that were the seeds that were planted in me uh, that forced me to later pursue a career in planning. And it wasn't until I was in grad school that I started seeing the cities very differently. It wasn't just about buildings. It was about the people. And so I had this sharp focus as I was planning that, yes, we plan for place, but I want to understand the soul, the culture, the memories that form this magical place. People may see a building, but some will say, you know something, someone got married in that building. That's my father and I played baseball for the first time. And so I want to take in all those memories, the spirit of the place, the culture of the place. To me, that's the part that most planners don't focus on. They look at the physical, the spatial, the form, the function. But to me, we ultimately design spaces and places for people. So that's in it in a nutshell. And it's just something that I certainly love. And anytime I'll do a planning study, I have to spend time and talk to the residents, not just in the public meeting. To me, I want to foster this relationship to get to know them and understand them. And to me, that really is more fulfilling than just looking at it from Google Maps or just looking at it a map from an office. I have to feel the place because we always know there's a genius loci of a place, but it also involves the memories, the people and the culture on what made this place special. That's really inspiring, uh, Commissioner Silver. This is Sahara James, by the way. And um, that piece about adding people to planning, um, that kind of actually segues into my question. Uh, the park's vision is to create and sustain thriving parks and public spaces for all New Yorkers. Access to open and green space can improve quality of life. So, of course, it's of paramount importance that this access is equitable across the city. However, we do see uh, that lower income neighborhoods often have less access to this open and green space. Can you speak to the initiatives you've led as a commissioner to combat this problem? Sure. And thank you for the question, Sahara. I love that name, by the way. I have another daughter. Her name is going to be Sahara. I love the name. Ah, so thank you. <laughs> the parents did well. Uh, yeah. So when I came on board, uh, as I mentioned to you, we looked very carefully at walk score. Uh, Clearly, uh, for generations, New York City was laid out and some neighborhoods got larger parks 
and other neighborhoods got a lot of smaller parks, uh, Brooklyn in particular, parts of Queens. And so coming on board, we wanna make sure that everyone had uh, access to quality public space. So we did this analysis to find out were we being equitable on how we were planning and maintaining our park system. And when we looked at how much we spent over the past two decades, New York City spent close to $6 billion improving their park system. And we had this walk score, as I mentioned, uh, over 80% of New Yorkers within a 10 minute walk to the park. But to me, it wasn't just about proximity, it was also about quality. And so we did this analysis to find out of that 6 billion, how many parks received little to no investment over 20 years? And it turned out there were 215. 215 neighborhoods, seniors, families, kids that did not have access to a quality space. And from our point of view, when I say equity, I mean fair and just. It wasn't fair at all. And so the first thing we're able to do was come up with an initiative called the Community Parks Initiative. And we focused on 67 of the 215 parks that virtually were neglected for 20 years and decided to totally scrape it down to the ground and redevelop an entirely new park. We did that with a lot of community outreach. We did not want it to be top down. We wanted to do the community engagement to understand what the community wanted to see for their public space. That program has been phenomenal. We've already completed 48 of the 67 and now usership of these public spaces have now increased well over 50%. The stories are endearing. Uh, I can go on and on about the feedback, but the community is so touched. One gentleman in Staten Island said, what are you doing here? I thought nobody cared. This space has been like that for 20 years. Now I could take my children and play in this space with pride and knowing this is safe space. So that's a community parks initiative to make sure that those communities that have been left out for 20 years now have a quality space. And our design meets all the sustainability, uh, all the goals. Uh, we're breaking up the asphalt, stormwater retention, lots of trees, lots of places to sit, and it's really a, a place where people can connect. So just love the Community Parks Initiative by far, my favorite, and I'm glad I came to New York to make that happen. Then we had Parks Without Borders. Um, I, as a planner, I, I told the mayor, I can't stay within the framework of a park. I have to look what's outside of it because parks are connected to neighborhoods and culture and the public realm. And as I mentioned, New York City uh, with its parks, that represents 14% of the city's footprint, but streets and sidewalks represents 26%. You put that together, 40% of New York City is in the public realm. And so it was my goal to figure out how do we create this seamless public realm? The average citizen does not know that this is managed by the parks department and this is managed by Department of Transportation and they don't care. And so our goal with this new program called Parks Without Borders was to re-envision the public realm. Umstead said the sidewalk adjacent to the park considered the outer park. And so now re-envisioning the parks and the sidewalk or the outer park to make sure it's now connected to the park. We're lowering fences or removing fences. We're putting in more openings so people have better access, improving sight lines. And now we're working with other agencies to see how we can capture that public realm near a park to incorporate it. The city owns it. We don't have to buy it. We just have to program it very differently. So the Parcel Borders Program was a $50 million initiative that's now part of the department's philosophy. Uh, there's something called Anchor Parks. I wanna talk about the cool pools because that one I'm very proud of. Uh, this was also an equity issue. We've noticed how our municipal pools didn't look very good. Uh, it wasn't a place I'd wanna go to. We wanna change it from a pool to a place, to a real destination. 
And so with a little bit of money, we went to a couple of our pools. We have about 17 pools that were built in the 1970s and did this incredible transformation. We painted it with bright colors. We approved the pool deck by having benches and flowers and, and cabanas. I mean, people now go to it and they think it's the resort. Our numbers went through the roof in terms of people attending. We want to give people the dignity that even though this is a municipal pool, it does not have to look like a municipal pool. And so those were just some interventions that we put in place to really make the experience of New Yorkers, whether it's a pool or a park, a lot better and to let them know that they matter. And so those are just three. The other one was Anchor Parks, but I'm so excited about the Parks Initiative, Parks Without Borders, and the Cool Pools. The Impact Report podcast is brought to you this week by Reset Social Enterprise Trust, a Hartford-based organization advancing the social enterprise sector through its impact accelerator, food incubator, and advocacy work. Reset invites you to join their virtual Beyond Business as Usual conference on October 8th at 9 a.m. Use code BARD2020 for a special discount. You can find more information at resetco.org. department is definitely busy with these initiatives and it's really inspiring to hear and um, it also leads into my next question considering uh, when we watched one of your talks you talked a lot about uh, these asphalt spaces that tend to be in these in these lower income neighborhoods which also tends to be neighborhoods of people of color uh, so as a person of color leading an agency with a large and diverse staff, you recently demonstrated the agency's commitment to standing with the Black Lives Matter movement and fighting systemic racism by addressing the related issues in the park system. There's already been the renaming of a portion of Cadman Plaza to Juneteenth Grove, uh, with more renaming to be announced on November 2nd, which, by the way, is Black Solidarity Day. Uh, can you talk more about this commitment and what it looks like in practice for parks? Well, thank you for the question and thank you for doing your homework. I have to say that the whole Black Lives Matter movement and what happened to Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, but earlier that day, Christian Cooper went to Central Park and was confronted by a woman, as you all know, asking her to put her dog on a leash and then there was a confrontation. All that culminated uh, to the point where just enough was enough. And being a black man, uh, it was an awakening for me as well. Um, I wrote a message to our staff about how a scab was ripped off. And uh, you know, being at my age and suppressing your identity for so long, it was a sense of freedom where I now can speak out and feel I don't have to check my black identity at the door. So I shared that my feelings with staff to let them know they were not alone, that I stand in solidarity with the black community and Black Lives Matter. I'm a runner, did a lot of running protests as well as other protests. And my staff was like, Commissioner, why don't you tell us who would have been there right by your side? That was touching. And so I decided to have a reflection uh, with my staff. People kept asking all of my white allies, uh, what can we do? It's like, before you ask, what can you do? Please ask people how they feel. Because I think at that time it was very raw, depending on your age, you were experiencing the whole Black Lives Matter differently. And so we decided to have what we call reflections. We invited our black staff on a series of calls, Zoom, they did not have to show their picture, uh, but just to share. And out of that 
experience, a lot of people felt uh, that while they still wanted to share their feelings, they wanted to do something. This was early June. And so they said, we want to stand in solidarity. We want to do something. And so with Juneteenth around the corner, we came up with the idea of creating a space for protest, for reflection, uh, whatever it may be. And so we took a portion of Cabin Plaza and there happened to be a lot of protest at Cabin Plaza and it was the perfect location. Because of the 19, I kept saying, we need a number. We need something to do uh, to plant trees. So with the 19, we planted 19 trees. It so happened there were 19 benches as you entered Cadman Plaza. And so we decided to paint those benches, the Pan-African colors of red, black, and green. And it was just perfect. Uh, we felt we wanted to do more. So now we're doing an analysis of a lot of our parks in New York City. And we want to be able to name them after prominent local, black, national, or global leaders. And that process is underway. And as you mentioned, it'll be announced on November 2nd. The Juneteenth Grove was something very special. A staff went there, we painted ourselves. I was able to pray over the tree uh, that I helped plant as a way of just acknowledging those before us because Juneteenth is a day of celebration, but recognizing what's happening with Black Lives Matter, we always wanna make sure that the roots that went down went to the past, but then branches up, reached toward the future. So it was very symbolic, it was ceremonial. People go there right now in a state of shock. It was beautifully done. And if you see the park, that was all done in six days. And so for us, we were very proud that we were able to do that. Our incredible staff, a very diverse group put it up. And now we're looking to even do more. As commissioner, we now want to make sure we have more of these reflections. I want to create a safe space, whether people are queer or black or Latinx, regardless, it is my goal to create a safe space where people can come to work and be themselves without fear of, of feeling intimidated uh, by what's going on inside. They can express themselves without any fear of retaliation. Thank you, Commissioner Silver. This is Justin McAmmond. Um, I'm, I'm really moved by your commitment um, to in solidarity with the Black Lives Movement, both internally with your park staff and externally through the naming of, of parks. Um, it's incredible work that you're doing. And as you said, it's really capturing the soul, the culture and, and memories of the city. Um, I can imagine during these times as we're in a budget crisis, um, as a result of the pandemic, some of those goals might be compromised. Um, the Parks Department specifically has been slashed, that budget's been slashed by $85 million. Um, but at the same time, these parks have been a refuge for pandemic-weary New Yorkers. What challenges and opportunities has the agency encountered during the pandemic? Well, during the pandemic, as I stated earlier, it was the only game in town. It was the only public space that was open, and not all. The passive parks were open. We had to close playgrounds, basketball courts, a lot of our fields. So parks was the only uh, asset that remained open. And um, our workers were concerned at first. They were essential workers. They had to keep the parks open. And it was a lot of fear and concern. But I have to tell you how proud I am of our workers who came to work each and every day during the beginning of COVID. This is March, April, May, when you saw it spiking in New York City. They're a proud bunch. They want to make sure that the parks were clean and safe for the people to come and use it. And then the budget cut hit. Uh, we're down $9 billion. 
So we knew we'd absorb a hit and we're down about 1700 seasonals. And this is our peak season. We had to fight very hard to get our beaches open and train our lifeguards. We couldn't do all of our pools. We only did about, uh, I think 13 or 15 pools of our 53. And now with the budget cuts, people are going to parks in record numbers. And unfortunately, we just cannot keep up with the litter pickup. We're starting a campaign asking people to carry in, carry out, and to help us through volunteers to clean our parks. Uh, we can't cut the grass or weed as much as we used to because we're down a lot of individuals. And our parking, we call them parkies. Our parkies are very proud. And it's difficult not to be able to keep up with the demand because people are using our parks more than ever. Uh, so you're going to see a little more litter in our parks. You're going to see the grass and weeds not cut. It's breaking our hearts because that's not the quality experience we want for New Yorkers. But the good news is we're reaching out to our conservancy partners, our friends groups, residents, and having a lot of volunteers coming out to help us. Uh, but anyone can see that there's now a big difference in our parks. And being short uh, 1,700 employees really makes a difference because we can't hit some of our service levels. We're doing our best. Uh, we're trying to get the word out. We've already launched an anti-litter campaign and a carry-in, carry-out campaign. And all of us now are volunteering, uh, including myself, to help clean parks on weekends. So we're doing our part. Uh, but since we know how important parks are to New Yorkers, particularly during COVID, it's so important that we all pitch in. And I hope I use this platform to tell anyone visiting our parks, if you bring trash in, please take it with you. If you see a trash can that's overflowing, go to another trash can and put it there. Uh, but we all know how beautiful parks are. They're respite, they're for relaxation, they're for meditation. And the last thing people want to see is a park that is not maintained. So we're doing our best, but it's going to be a struggle and a challenge uh, when you're down uh, that many employees particularly what we call our peak season. Thank you for your um, <clears throat> honest sort of insight into how parks department and staff have been compromised due to the budget. And then also the opportunity for New Yorkers to um, chip in and, uh, you know, assist with the maintenance and the, the greening and the cleaning of our parks. Um, Let me looking just, sort of I just want to add, and then between that, we had a major storm where we had over 21,000 calls for down trees and branches. And amidst of all this going on, our forestry team and our other staff had to shift gears because there are a lot of trees blocking streets, trees on homes, branches in parks. In fact, we're still cleaning it up. The, the, it was 21,000 generated about 11,000 work orders where we had to clean up, cut up, and remove all those branches all over New York City. In the midst of COVID and Black Lives Matter, we had this major storm. So if you see a park worker, just thank them to say thank you for a job well done. Sorry, Justin, I didn't want to cut you off, but I had to get that in there. No, no, thank you for expanding and thank you for, you know, leading that um, that charge and restoring, you know, our parks and, and trying to accommodate um, New Yorkers as we as we flood the parks during this pandemic. Um, we're going to move into our last and final question, and it's looking a little further ahead. Um, you had mentioned New York City's strategic plan, this one New York City goal to have 85% New Yorkers living within walking distance of a park by 2030. Um, and then you also highlighted parks' role in building the city's resilience in the face of climate change. So 
of serving as carbon sinks, capturing stormwater runoff, filtering air pollutants, and lowering temperatures. How do you decide between what gets funded when the needs react to immediate needs impacts the more long-term desire to invest in transformative expansion and sustainable design? Well, we have a plan for both. Uh, we know how to get to our 85%. And so we're looking at key acquisitions. We also want to convert a lot of schoolyards to playgrounds. And so that initiative is underway. We already have a map where we know where those gaps exist. And so we're trying to do those strategic acquisitions or conversions to make sure people have better access for parks. So that plan is underway and we do plan to get to 85% by 2030. Uh, in terms of sustainability, this is now built into all of our work. We had flood design guidelines for all of our parks. We wanna make sure the type of species that are planted that uh, one is good for the environment, uh, but also it diversifies the uh, native species that are uh, really relevant, they're relevant here in, in New York, prevalent in New York, I meant to say. And so removing invasives, uh, even along our shoreline, we wanna make sure we have now species that could absorb salt uh, because we will have storm surges, hopefully not too serious. And so there's a whole new thinking going forward about how we build our city. We're taking sea level rise very seriously. There are some controversial projects. East River Park is one of them, where we're gonna have to elevate some of the more vulnerable places in New York City. The Rockaway, uh, that is a project, as you may recall, during Superstorm Sandy was absolutely devastated, as well as other communities. We now built a concrete boardwalk with reinforced dunes that can absorb the storm surge. We're looking at other areas of New York City, Coney Island, Staten Island, the Lower East Side, because we believe that climate change is real. We believe that storm surge and sea level rise is real and we're preparing for that future. So some of our parks may look very different. East River Park, we're gonna elevate that park about 10 feet. Uh, so it's gonna be a very different park in the future, but our goal is to prepare for sea level rise, but also to protect lives and property. So that's what we're looking toward the future. We certainly wanna expand uh, our parks open space. We certainly wanna prepare for climate change. We wanna have a more sustainable park system. And we wanna make sure that everyone has equal and equitable access to our parks. So it's something I'm very proud of uh, while I served my term as commissioner. The saddest thing is my term has a beginning and an end. So I'm working as quickly as possible to make sure we get as much done as possible. And I am proud to say while I've been here as commissioner, we've completed over 700 capital projects to make New York City parks a better place. Thank you so much, um, Commissioner. It's just moving to, to be with you, um, to hear your commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, to hear this vision of you know parks without borders, um, to see your vision to make a more sustainable New York City, inspiring, um, particularly for us as grad students. So thank you so much for your time, um, and we look forward to seeing the work that you continue to do with parks uh, moving forward. Thank you very much and thank you all for doing your homework. I sometimes forget about some of those speeches you do and that are taped, but uh, <laughs> thank, thank you for watching. Uh, it was an interesting transition going from planning to parks, but the same principles apply, especially when you think of the equity, diversity, and inclusion. That to me is applicable in any work that you do and is absolutely vital, particularly today.
You can follow Commissioner Silver on Instagram and Twitter and learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode by visiting nycgovparks.org. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, October 16th. We'll be speaking with Neil Spackman, co-founder and CEO of Regenerative Resources Co. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.